All right, let's stand. And as we stand, we'll open our Bibles. Put your finger in Genesis chapter two. We're starting in verse four through 14. Uh, As we learned last week, we added the chapters and the verse numbers uh, after the fact. And so uh, I feel confident and I think God would be okay with me saying that the way that this section reads, verse four, where we're beginning today, is the next section after chapter one. So while we have the chapter break at verse one, the real break in the story is here in verse four. So if that just gives you a little bit of clarity why we're starting there. And then we'll get to be bouncing back into chapter one next week, and then bouncing back to chapter two after that, and you just have to trust that as we kind of move around, especially at these beginning chapters of Genesis, that it's to serve us as we kind of digest the entire narrative of what God is doing in these beginning chapters. So this is the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter two. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for Yahweh God had not set rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. Yahweh God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Can I get an amen? Love food. Maybe too much sometimes. All right. uh, In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher And the fourth river is the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we learned last week, Genesis was written to us, or I mean for us, I should say, but it wasn't written to us. And so that means that the way that we approach this text and the entire Bible for that matter uh, is that we sit under it. It has the authority. It speaks down into our lives. We do not stand above it and judge it based off of the questions that we feel it should have answered. Because it wasn't written to us, but it is for us. And it's still extremely relevant to us. But we gotta get in the shoes, as we've learned, of the people that this book was first given to. And who were they? They were God's people, the Israelites, and what was going on in their lives. They were just coming out of 400 years of oppression, slavery, in Egypt, and this book would have been water to their souls for so many reasons. And so the question that we need to ask, one of the scholars that we actually had the privilege of sitting under a few months ago in preparation of reading this book is what type of creation account is this? That's really the question that we need to ask. What type of creation account is this? And he gave us a really interesting and helpful illustration, I believe. He said, imagine that you're going to a play and On your way to the play, you get stuck in traffic and so sweaty and anxious, you're like gripping the steering wheel really tight. And as you get there, 
You can't find a parking space because all the parking spaces are taken. And so you finally find one. And as you hustle into the theater and get to your seat, sweaty and anxious, the lights come up and it's intermission. And you're like, dang it. You missed the whole first half of the play. And so you turn to the person next to you and you say, okay, well, tell me how the play began. So the person says, well, the script was written in the 1930s and you should really know about the script writer. He was an amazing. And then you stop him and you say, wait, wait, wait a second. I just want to know how the play began. And he says, well, you can't have a play without a script. Surely that's how the play began. And another person said, well, maybe I can help. So they lean in and they say, what you have to know about the set is how it was built. It was built specifically for this black box theater that we find ourselves in. It's a beautiful set. In fact, they flew in people from all over the world to build the set. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not wondering about the set. I want to know how the play began. They said, well, of course, you can't have a play without a set. You need a set before you can even have a play. And finally, a third person swoops in. They said, maybe I can help. What you really need to know is about the cast. Here's the list of the cast members. They too were taken from all over the world. That we couldn't have. And you say, stop. Wait a second. I, I, I know that all of those things are components of the play, but will somebody just please tell me what happened when the curtain first opened? And so... What's going on here? Which answer is the right answer? How'd the play begin? They're all right answers, but they're all different answers. And they're not competing truths. They're actually all true. And you can answer the question, how did the play begin several different ways? And so when we come to Genesis, the beginning of Genesis is what happens when the curtain is pulled back. And therefore, we cannot impose our new set of questions on the text if God was not intending to answer those questions in the first place. Now, that doesn't make God's answer of how the play began any less relevant or any less true. It just means that we sit under its authority and not the other way around. You don't get to stand above God's word and accuse it based off of your culture, your thoughts, your ideas. Because I'm sure they had a lot of questions for God. I mean, could you imagine coming out of 400 years of slavery? And I'd be wondering what the heck went so wrong to get us to this place? Like, what were the blueprints for this thing, God? They've been in hell for 400 years and they're getting a historical retrieval of the heaven that they fell from. But they're also looking forward to this promised land that they're about to step into. And the promised land is a small retrieval of these things. But what they will see is that the promised land still will not be enough because even as good as the promised land is, it isn't what they were originally made for. They were made for something better. We were made for something better. We were made for Eden. And you know this instinctually. I mean, I don't even have to tell you this intellectually. You feel this in every single day of your life. Like, the world is not the way that it is supposed to be. Look at the news cycle. I mean, the news is basically just telling us every single day what is wrong with the world. And maybe a good world to describe the tension that we all feel in our souls is the word longing. We all long for something. We have this deep desire for something that we can't quite put our finger on, and that is because we were made for something that isn't here right now. We were made for Eden. And see, we're creatures that were designed to long for Eden, and I love what J.R.R. Tolkien 
says as he diagnoses the roots of our longing, he says we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. And everyone is fine diagnosing what is wrong with the world. Read Twitter, Facebook, everyone's got an answer. But the Bible actually explains how it went wrong and why it went wrong. But maybe more even important than that question, the Bible seeks to answer what was right with the world before it went wrong. And that's what we're talking about this morning. This is why Genesis matters, specifically the first two chapters, because human flourishing begins when we understand what we were made for. And Eden is best described maybe with two words. I mean, you could say a million words to describe Eden because the applications and the implications are literally endless. But for the sake of drawing a line through the text this morning, I think Eden really represents two things, the presence of God and the relationship of God with his people. It's God's home built for communion. With us, And so as we reach four of chapter two, the text zooms in. And you probably have a lot of questions. Like, in some ways, it seems like we have two different creation accounts, but that's not what's going on here. The way I've found it helpful to think about this week is, you know, when you pull out your phone and you go to Apple Maps or Google Maps and you get the 10,000-foot view, and so then you put in the address of the place that you're gonna go. And I think only Google has this, but in the bottom right, you'll have a little box and there's this like twirly symbol on it. And if you click that box, get down on the ground level and you can actually shift the camera around and they call that Google Street View. In a lot of ways, this is exactly how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are supposed to interplay with one another. They're both accounts of creation, but one is cosmic and the other gets down in the nitty gritty and God is literally starting to form and shape with his hands the world and the people that he created. And he wants you to see this contrast. I mean, just think about the type of language that's used in this text. God is this potter forming the man. He's this gardener throwing trees here and there with all the types of fruit that are pleasing to our eye and good for food. And he's this cosmic temple builder who's making his home on, in Eden. And, and in this home, he will place Adam and Eve to know him, run on him, and work with him. And even notice the verbiage of verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when Yahweh God made the heavens and the earth. What's going on here? This verse is actually a chiasm and a chiasm kind of symbolizes an X. It's, it's where the optic nerves of both of your eyes uh, connect together as they look at something or you could think about it like a sandwich where you have the buns and then you have all the things inside of them and the best part is the center, it's the meat or you could think about it like an apex of a mountain. So when you hear the poetry of the single verse, it's supposed to reveal an emphasis. The, this is the count of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. It seems a little bit redundant, right? But what it's supposed to do is draw your eyes to the middle, and the middle is Yahweh God. Now, in your text, it probably says the Lord, and our English translators actually think that they're doing us a service by writing in the Lord, but that's not what the original text says. It says Yahweh Elohim. Now, you're wondering, like, well, how does this matter? 
Well, if you were to look at Genesis 1, every single time that the word God is used in Genesis 1, it's the word Elohim, and this word best describes God as cosmic, creator, sovereign, maker of the universe. And then here we are in verse four of chapter two, and the name of God changes, or at least it's added to, and now you have Yahweh Elohim, and Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God, is the one that speaks of him as a relationship builder, as a covenant maker, as a personal Lord. Yahweh means that the God of the Bible is not just all powerful, he is all personal. Do you know that God has a name? And do you know that he wants to relate to you on a first name basis? Say Yahweh. That was six of you. Are you kidding? <laughs> Say Yahweh. There we go. That's God's name. And just as much as he knows every single hair on your head, he made you intricately. He knows everything about you. He knows you on a first name basis. So the same God that spoke the world into creation in Genesis chapter one gets down on our level and he says, here's my name. My name is Yahweh and I want you to know me on a first name basis. And so many of us need to know that God is not just Elohim, but Yahweh Elohim. I mean, how many of us think that God is just some distant disciplinarian who swoops down into the creation that he threw into motion, but then removes himself from just when we act up bad and when we need a little bit of judgment in our lives or we need to be whipped up into shape or how many of us on the other side of the equation just fit God in our pocket. He becomes this genie that we can just conjure up whatever we need from him when we want it and he becomes small. But if God is Yahweh Elohim, he is all-powerful, transcendent, sovereign Lord of the universe, but he is also most personal, and he comes to us in Genesis 2 and says, let me introduce myself. I'm not just Elohim, I'm Yahweh, Elohim. And sometimes, actually, not sometimes, oftentimes, as I'm wrestling through a text the week that I'm preparing to preach, I don't quite have the right words, and so I was sitting on my desk this week across from my desk mate, um, Jamie Bartlett, who's our director of foster and adoption care here. And I said, Jamie, I'm just wrestling with this concept. It's almost breaking my mind. Like I can't even fit it in here. Can you help me put some language to what I'm trying to get at? And she's like, well, let me see if I could write something out. And a few minutes later, she sent me an email and it said this. <laughs> if we see God only as all powerful, he will be amazing to behold but too intimidating to draw near to. And if we see God as only personal and close, he will be comforting, but too familiar to be in awe of. We need both his vastness and his nearness. In fact, we see the fullness of both of these in the person of Jesus Christ. Come on, Jamie. Get it. And if Jamie is right, and she's right, I don't think there's a better way to open our Bible or understand the nature of God. Look at God's beauty and the way that he says, this is who I am. I am not just Elohim, I am Yahweh Elohim. He is the maker of all things, but he is not detached from his creation. He is near and close, and he is personally and intricately involved in your life. How do you approach God? 
Who is God to you? Those are things that this text considers important to ask. And I think we need to ask of ourselves. And see, this is why we sit underneath the text because when we do that, we let the text tell us who God is. God gets to tell us who he is. He's not a figment of our imagination. We don't get to tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. Because God creating Eden is not just so that he would dwell with us, but that he would have relationship with us in the midst of his presence. Look at verse five. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for Yahweh God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Is it a little bit strange to you that chapter two kind of begins with its deficiency and actually it's kind of a mirroring of chapter one because what do we get at the beginning of chapter one? We get the soupy, primordial chaos abyss that God moves into and brings order to but then in chapter two as the creation of the world comes to be, it begins with three statements of deficiency. There was no shrub that had appeared, no plant that had sprung up, no rain. And then we get the reason why, because there was no one to work the ground. And I was struck by this verse. What do you mean, God, there was no one to work the ground? You've been working the ground into all of its majesty. You work that ground, God. I'm glad two people got that joke. Thank you. But instead, what does he say? He leaves the earth in this kind of needy state because there was no one to work with God. And God doesn't just want us to know him personally. I think this points to us to come alongside him in relationship with him and work with him. Uh, this week, my mom sent me some pictures of me when I was growing up sitting on some scaffolding next to my dad as he was putting an addition on our house. And those are some of my favorite memories of working with my dad. He'd invite us into these projects and we were little, if not no help to him. In fact, oftentimes we made things worse, not better. But in these pictures, you should see my dad's face. It's just filled with joy. Like, And any father knows this. When you invite your kids into your work, like... <laughs> It's just amazing. And I haven't even got there yet with my two daughters. You know, they're three and one and a half. And um, they'll invite me into their work. You know, they're working on a coloring, coloring book. And they'll say, Dad, come and color with me. And the joy that that alone brings to my heart is amazing. But I long for the day where I can invite my daughters into my work and say, hey, this is what Daddy does. And I want you to be a part of it. I love my daughters. And I want them to love what I love. And when we begin to build the kingdom of God, when we begin to work as God is a worker, we are invited into a building project with dad, our heavenly father. And he bears the ultimate consequences. If things go right or wrong, he does most of the heavy lifting. He makes all of the designs, but then he says, come on in, here's the blueprints. Here's the tools that you need to work out those blueprints into their most perfect state. And even when you fail, and we failed royally, who pays the consequences? God in Christ. But it's so much bigger than a job. It's so much bigger than just having to work. And think about the implications of this for a second for a people coming out of 400 years of slavery. To them, I'm sure, 
work was like, oh, work has to be evil. But then we get the blueprints in Genesis 2 and God creates work before he even creates a person to work the earth. Boy, is that an indictment on how we look at work. God wants us to work. Work was actually a part of his good creation. And we can find God in his work. So God creates the work and then he creates the one to work it. In verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathes his nostrils, the breath of night, life. Gosh, I can't speak. And the man became a living being. Can you see God on the potter's wheel? Just throwing down a piece of clay and starting to gently press his thumbs into this raw material and starts to shape and form human beings from the dust of the ground. And although our translations say dust, it's more like clay. That's probably a closer um, depiction of what's going on here. And this is a potter making a masterpiece. And this language is not just of our physical form, but it has to do with our identity. God is this potter shaping Adam to be everything that he wants Adam to be, fully formed Adam finally lays there and then we get another beautiful depiction of this God who is near and personal because he wraps his lips. At least that's how I see this image going and he breathes life into the lifeless body of Adam, the very breath of God in humanity. And do you see the beauty of God here? In chapter one, we have God as cosmic speaking the world into existence like that. And now we have God getting down on his knees, literally taking the man by his face and breathing into his nostrils his very life. I want you to close your eyes. And just go with me here for a second. I want you to put your hands on your face. And I want you to really feel it. Feel your face, and then I want you to cross your arms and feel your arms. And then as you move down your arms, I want you to feel your legs. Now as your eyes are closed, I want you to take a deep inhale. God did all of that. He gave you your breath. He gave you your body. It is not an accident. He formed you and he filled you. And just like God forms and fills the earth in Genesis 1, God also forms and fills you. But let's stop and think for a second about what the dangers are of not knowing that you are formed by God and filled with his breath. And I probably don't even have to say anything because right now I know your brains are going to many places. But I'm gonna say it anyway. Because when human beings are merely reduced to a clump of biology that accidentally ends up the way that we find ourselves, the consequences are grave. And not only are they grave, but the consequences of this type of thinking are celebrated today. Because of course, if we're simply an accident, then any human being for any reason can be discarded. No big deal. Just a lump of clay. Just a clump of biology. Or... 
when we don't like how we end up, we become the botter and say, this is the way that I should have made. And we do this metaphorically all the time. Like how many of us, including myself, have looked to find our identity in anything except for the maker of the universe? But now, unfortunately, we've also begun to do this physically. And I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill when I say that we are in a full-blown identity crisis. People do not know who they are, what they are, why they are made, why they're here on this earth. And as a result, we've given them as a culture this solution where we say, well, maybe you should take the clay of your bodies and change the clay of your bodies and mutilate it into something it was never designed to be. Maybe that will solve your identity crisis, but it is the most demonic message out there because God is a former and Satan is a deformer. God brings life and Satan brings destruction. And he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So you don't believe that lie for a second. And here's where we pause because as a church, we can get so judgmental or angry and it can become an us versus them conversation. Look at how crazy the world is. They're going to hell in a handbasket. But what if instead of that, we pulled up our bootstraps, we got to work with God and we started telling people about the maker of the universe and the fact that they were fearfully and wonderfully made. That should be our posture. And if you are here today and you are struggling with your identity, maybe even physically, maybe even your biology, look at me. God formed you. You are not an accident. You weren't accidentally put together. God made you. He formed you with all of your intricacies and he knit you together in your mother's womb with everything that you currently have and he did it with good purpose with good intention because he loves you and he wants you to know him and do you see the implications of this if human beings are both dust we are earthly creatures we do have biology but we're not just biology we have the very breath of god that both simultaneously exalts our status in the universe because we're made in the image of god but we're also earthly creatures which humbles us my one and a half year old noel she loves rocks for some reason it's kind of odd but we'll be going to wash her clothes and in her pockets, she'll just have rocks sometimes. Or we'll put on the washing machine and clink, 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 clink. Well, we're like, what's going on? Oh, Noelle put rocks in her clothes again. And uh, it made me think of this week an old piece of rabbinic advice where they would say you should carry at all times two rocks in each one of your pockets. On your right side, a rock that says dust. And on your left side, a rock that says divinity. And any time you forget who you are or why you are here, you can take out both of those rocks and it will keep you in perfect tension because we are dust and to dust we shall return. But God did so choose in his sovereignty to breathe his very life into our lungs. And it's in this juxtaposition that we find the beauty of our existence as human beings, isn't it? We're mortal but God gives us access to himself, access to eternal life through him. We're the only creatures that God says, I made you just like me. And so God won't just make man, but then he will put man in his home. 
And verses eight through 14 are just that. It's a verbal depiction of this home. It's a verbal depiction of Eden. And there's actually a map being set up here and it is literally criminal how much stuff I've already passed over and that I will pass over that I would love to tell you about this text. But we're just gonna do a flyover real quick because there's so much here. It is so beautiful. And so what's God describing in verses eight through 14? It's a map. And so you have Eden and then in the east of Eden is a garden. So Eden isn't the whole earth, but also the east of Eden is not the whole earth. And then in the east of Eden, God places a garden. And then in the middle of that garden, God places these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we actually have a slide for this. Um, there's temple imagery. This is, this is what God wants your mind to go, th- go through. So this is a rudimentary depiction of how the tabernacle or the temple where God would make his residence among his people after sin enters the world. And then here is the picture of the garden. So you have Eden, and then in the east of Eden, you, you have the garden. And then in the center of the garden, you would have these two trees that would give you access to perpetual life that would flow from God. And this is also why the river matters, because in ancient literature, the way that people would view uh, uh, a a uh, divine realm is oftentimes with a river that would flow out of it. So you can take that down. We can't get into all the details, but what God is trying for you to see is that the place that he puts human beings is right in his house. That God wants us to live in relationship and in his presence. And the first thing that we see is that God gives them trees and He gives them trees that aren't just there, but they're what? They're pleasing to the eye and they're good for food. And I don't know if you saw the trees when we drove in, but this morning I had this thought. I'm like, God could have just had the trees be green and then when the leaves needed to fall off, they could just fall off green. Like, why didn't he do that? And I'm convinced that the reason that he didn't do that is because it wasn't beautiful that way. And so instead, he's like, I'm gonna make them auburn red, burnt orange, and they're gonna change in every fall my people, if they would notice, would draw their eyes to heaven to see my glory, the fact that I have given them the trees that are even pleasing to our eyes. But not only that, God gives us food. And he doesn't just give us food. He gives us food that is good, that tastes good. I mean, when was the last time that we ate a good meal and let that meal draw our eyes to heaven? How are we to live in God's home? How are we to relate to God? Well, one of the ways that we're shown right here is that we relate to God through his physical creation. We are physical creatures. We relate to God through his stuff, his good food, his good trees, his good animals, his good mountains. Do you know that you can enjoy God and worship him through ordinary means? And sometimes I just think we have to look up from burying our heads in our phones and just see the wonderful creation that God has given us and stop rushing through eating our meals and actually taste the good food that God has given us. When was the last time that you noticed the cool breeze on your neck and thought of the Ruach, the very spirit of God? When was the last time you felt the coastal sands of Lake Michigan on your feet and let your eyes and heart be drawn to heaven? When was the last time you were out west and considered the majesty and the glory of the mountains and that that is just a fraction of how glorious and majestic our God is? God made these things so that we can experience him 
through the things that he's put on this earth. And some of the things that he's put on this earth are so glorious, it takes my breath away. And to think that that is only a hint of what it was supposed to be is almost mind-blowing. And while we can enjoy God and his creation, we all know that there is more to creation and to ourselves than that which we can taste, see, touch, smell, and hear. And that's why we also get two more trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life points to the reality of Jesus's words that man does not live on bread alone. We don't, we live through and by and for the maker of the universe. And maybe you haven't considered this thought, but it's true, man was not created immortal. We didn't lose that in the garden. We lost access to the tree of life which would provide perpetual life for those that were living in its presence. So while we were not immortal, that was an idea that the Greeks added later We were basically able to perpetually prolong our life forever by being in the very presence of God. So every time that Adam and Eve would eat of the fruit, they would be reminded that the only reason that they are living is because of the kindness of God, that they were desperate for him, that they couldn't live apart from him, that he was the very source of their life. And this points to the presence of God in Eden. But then... We're also given the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree is all about sustaining relationship with God. Because think about it. You might be asking, well, why doesn't God give them perpetual access to that tree? Because God wants us to be wise. He wants us to know good and evil. And I think that there's a hint there. And it points to the fact that God wants to do this. He wants to download this into us through relationship. We don't just go to school on the first day of kindergarten and get all of the information downloaded into our heads. We gotta do it with our classmates. We have to do it under the tutelage of our teacher. And in the same way, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. But that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. We've gotta walk with him. We gotta learn to live like him, be with him. That's how we learn good and evil. God doesn't just download it into us. We have a sense of it, but not all of it. And so what are all of these things pointing to? There's relationship and the presence of God in the home of God. And God puts us there because this is how we are supposed to relate to him. This is what it means to live, to have life. Eden is all about life, the river of life, the tree of life, the breath of life, and the source of all three, Yahweh, Elohim. And again, we're right back where we started. We were made for Eden, made to be in the presence of God and relationship with God, which is why I think C.S. Lewis sums this up best when he says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. God himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other way. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. 
human flourishing begins by understanding what we were made for. And we were made for Eden in the presence of God, for relationship with God, in God's home. But this isn't just what Eden's about. This is the whole story. When God makes a covenant with his people, it's both promise of relationship and his presence. He says, I will walk among you. There's his presence. And I will be your God. Not a God. I will be your personal God. That's relationship. And the temple and the tabernacle, the physical structure, right? Like that's where God's home was. There's presence. The sacrificial system was a new way to relate to God after sin entered the world. There's relationship and presence. In Jesus, there is the very presence of God coming to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't just come to be crucified, but to be among us. There's presence. And here's relationship. What does Jesus say? Come and be my disciples. Learn from me. Be my pupil. Learn to live a good life the way you were designed to live. And then as Jesus is preparing to leave the earth. He says, I gotta go, but by the way, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. There's his presence. Because where you will come is, is, is that, that place that I'm gonna prepare for you. And then as Jesus leaves, he says, I'm sending a comforter. And then on the day of Pentecost, that comforter comes and the spirit descends and fills. The very presence of God fills the people of God. And that's now you and me. We have the very presence of God living in our bones in our hearts. And finally, in Revelation, we see the end goal of all these things, and we're back in a garden, but it's so much better than even the first garden because it's a garden city, and the tree of life is there, the river of life is there, but most importantly, the uninhibited presence of God is there to be in relationship with humanity forever again. This whole book is about God's presence and relationship with his people. That's all he's ever wanted. And he doesn't do it because he needs human beings. He does it out of the overflow of his majestic love for us. This is who God is. He wants us to know him and love him. And Genesis 1 and 2 are the opposite sides of the same coin. And God's saying, this is who I am. Take a look at the coin. Look at both sides. Look at all of the intricacies. I want you to know me and love me and be in relationship with me. And I was just moved this week by Paul as he's preaching in Acts 17 to the Areopagus in Athens and, or he's preaching in the Areopagus and you know, they, had been, they had an inscription to an unknown God and Paul's like, well, I can help you out with that. I know him, so let me introduce you to him. And this is what Paul says. We got a slide for it actually. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. In fact, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this. Here's the kicker. So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, why? Though he is not far from any one of us, he's near. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He is Lord, 
He spoke creation into the universe and yet he is near and personal and he created you to live in his presence and with relationship to him so that you would know who you are. But maybe even more important than that, that you would know whose you are. You are his. He made you. He loved you. He formed you. He filled you. And then he made a home for you. And we've royally screwed up that home, but he's gonna bring us back. And when you feel homesick for your home here on this side of eternity, it just points us to the fact that we should feel 10 times that for the home that we were really made for. Not Eden, but new creation. Father, help us to see your glory and your goodness and your creation. Help us to walk in your ways, be in relationship with you, live with you, love you, serve you, give our lives for you as you did for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.